Father God, you are holy. You are completely other than what we are. And you've told us to be holy because and as you are holy. But Father, we all readily acknowledge and admit that that is foreign to us. We cannot be holy by any effort on our part. We need your Holy Spirit to overcome us, to make us holy. And it is up to us to yield, to surrender to His holy work in us. I pray that that would happen in these minutes. Make us holier as a result of being here today, in the Word today, than we were yesterday. And may tomorrow be even more so, and the next, and the next. And we'll give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Before coming to faith here uh, seven years ago, it's been seven years, hard to believe, right? Um, But before that, we moved back here from Virginia, and we moved for the purpose of starting a church, which we did, Life Point Church. We planted that church. A couple of you are are here uh, that were with us there. Um, And we started off... And we just met in homes, and it was just a couple families. And we did start growing, and it was great, it was exciting. And we actually joined a church planting network, which is uh, a group of people that come together and kind of pool resources and help new church plants thrive and flourish and grow. So we joined a network called the Berean Network, the Berean Church Planting Network. And uh, it was great. And we were, we were really encouraged by them, and we were continuing to grow. And then, kind of all of a sudden, everything just came to a screeching halt. Um, people moved away. Uh, our growth just stopped. I mean, we didn't really change anything. We, you know, it's not like we had changed something that would be the answer to why all that stopped. To the best of our knowledge, that there wasn't any uh, open or, or undealt with sin that was, you know, allowed, and we weren't compromising on anything. So we couldn't really figure out, you know, why, why have, have all of a sudden all this momentum, why did it just kind of come to a screeching halt? And so we contacted our advisor with our network. You know, we had a, a church planting advisor, a helper, a coach, if you will. And so we were talking through different things. He came out for a visit even, and um, long story short, the end result of all of of their considerations was that we needed to shift our focus towards people that could give more money. And it was so much so that they even recommended that we end the church plant as it was and restart in a different community, different area, that had more resources so that we could actually grow faster and grow, grow better. So their prognosis was to grow 
And to thrive and to flourish and to be healthier, you need to go find people that can give more money. We didn't accept that. We left the Berean Church Network right after that. And I'm not telling you that so that you can say, oh, how spiritual he was. That's not my point. Uh, I'm I'm just letting you know that you know, we, we left because, to me, there, there was no other alternative when, when you realize that's their answer for why maybe you're not growing, uh, for why God doesn't seem to be blessing the way He was at first, when that's what they can't come, came up with, that let me know a lot about the heart of that organization that I didn't see before. And whether it's that answer or another type of answer, whenever a church, whether it's a church plant or an established church like this one, whenever a church isn't growing at the rate people think it should be or at the rate they want it to be, a question that continually gets asked, and it's not in itself a bad question, it's actually a good question to ask, it's a question that, that gets asked this way, or, or not one form of this, some, some way that this is asked. Why isn't God blessing us? Or, why isn't God blessing us like He used to? Remember how it used to be? And those questions, in those form or another, always lead to another question. Again, in itself, this is not a bad question to ask. What needs to be done for God to really bless us or to bless us like He undeniably did before? And most people have pretty strong opinions, right, on this matter when it comes to church health, church growth, God's blessing, God's working. Most people have pretty strong opinions uh, on this, and there's no shortage of articles and blog posts on the subject Trust me on that. You know, as a pastor who's been in church world for a long time, you know, we, we study those kinds of things, we read those kind of things, and there's all kinds of, of different opinions all across the spectrum of what needs to happen or should happen to ensure God's blessing, uh, to ensure a vibrant, growing church. All sorts of opinions and uh, ways of going about that. Personally, personally, after 20 years in local church ministry as a pastor, I am more convinced than ever that the best way, the biblical way, to go about things so that God will bless and empower the work of the ministry is to consistently perform spiritual checkups. And as a result of those spiritual checkups, to aggressively eliminate the presence of sin from our individual lives, which will then naturally result in the whole body being pure and healthy. And the opposite is also true, I'm more convinced than ever, that if we don't do these spiritual checkups, where we are checking in on on our own lives, and then in grace and in love and in accountability, we're checking on each other, 
if we're not doing that individually and we're not collectively doing spiritual checkups and eliminating sin from our lives and from our body, if we're not doing that, then it doesn't matter what we may try or do or even succeed in from a human standpoint, we will not be truly a biblical healthy church. The absence of sin is what makes a biblically sound and healthy church. And that starts at the individual level. And as we are individually doing that, then collectively we will be. And that's definitely not just important, and it's not just true because I've said that. And it's by no means original with me. It's a concept or principle that you can see all through Scripture. Think of Jesus addressing the churches of Asia in Revelation. I mean, that's some pretty scathing language that he uses there, and it's, it's pretty stern rebukes that he uses for most of those churches, right? Because he's saying, I don't care what you think you are like, and I don't care what other people looking in on you think you're like, I see what you're like, and I see that there's a lot that needs to be dealt with. Purge out the sin. Purge out the evil from you. I see your ways. I know your ways. I see more than anyone else. And it's definitely not limited to just the New Testament. This actually goes all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way back to Israel's conquest of the Promised Land. And that's where we're going to be together today. Joshua 7. We're going to read the whole chapter. So buckle up, get ready. Joshua 7, we're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to look at what happened in this account. We're going to look at three lessons that this account will teach us and show us, and then we're going to make very, very personal application from that. That's where we're headed. Joshua 7, glean the truth from that chapter, and then make personal application from it. But first, before we dig into Joshua 7, I need to read this verse, Joshua 6.18, because this sets up the context for what Joshua 7 is all about. Joshua 6.18, God said this, keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, those things that are set apart for destruction, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. So this is right after the fall of Jericho. Jericho has fallen and God said to Joshua and to all of Israel, There are are things in the rubble and in the debris and the wreckage that you're going to see that is intact, that you're going to want, fleshly speaking, you're going to covet it, you're going to want to take it, don't do it. I have set apart the things of Jericho for utter destruction. I don't want anything to remain. I want it all stamped out. I've decreed it. You need to honor that. And if you take any of those things, you're going to bring trouble for yourself and you will even end up experiencing the destruction that I have reserved for Jericho and all the things from it. So there's the warning. There's the command. And it was clear. It was understood. With that being said, let's look at Joshua 7. I'll be reading from the CSB. Joshua 7. The Israelites, however, and that right there is a theme, isn't it? All through Israel's history, all through the Old Testament. But the Israelites, however were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, 
son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Notice that it didn't say that the Lord's anger burned just against Achan. Burned against the Israelites. Why? Because he was part of a community. He was part of the nation of Israel. One person's sin affected the whole. And that's true for us today as well. That's why we have to be so careful. It's not, all, it's not just about us. Verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. You know, so they were moving on from Jericho to continue their conquest to usher in the promised land for Israel. So go out and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, Hey, good news. Don't send all the people. But send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai, since the people of Ai are so few. Don't wear out all our people there. In other words, hey, Joshua, this is going to be no problem. This is like, this is like JV. You know, let's, let, let's not send in our varsity. Let's just rest them. Send in JV. We can, we can do it. There's, there's not that many. They don't have strong fortifications. We can take them no problem. And this wasn't just false bravado. This, this actually should have happened. Ai was a small area. Israel should have had no trouble defeating them. I mean, by rights, by natural things, they were right. That, that's how it should have been. Verse 4, So, about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarry, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads, all of which is a sign of of mourning and grief. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. Remember how it used to be? Before this, we were safe. We were blessed. What happened? Verse 8, What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? The Lord then said to Joshua, Stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. In other words, there's a time for grief and mourning, then there's a time for action. There's a time to do something about it. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. Notice the plural here. They, their. Not him and he. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you. My favor will not be with you. My blessing will not be with you unless unless you remove 
from among you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. So, again, our sin doesn't just affect us. As we sin individually, it will inevitably affect others around us. In our own family, in our faith family, in our community of faith, it never just stays with you as an individual sinner. We see that here. Verse 14, In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the thing set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. God is saying, I'm actually being merciful by saying this. This is what it's going to take to purge out the evil from you. This is what it's going to take to restore my favor with you. And that's what I want to have happen. And so this is actually a merciful thing. Next, we see the individual who made this offense and brought this sin into Israel, held accountable and judged. Verse 16, Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward, and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by heads of families, and Zabdi was selected. He then had Zabdi's family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to Him. That's very significant. That lets us know that God is glorified when we confess our sin to Him. He gets glory from our confession. Through our admitting, I have sinned before you. I have sinned. I'm not running from it. I'm not hiding it. I'm, I'm admitting it. I'm acknowledging it. He is glorified when we are honest and we confess. Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to Him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. In verse 20, Achan replied to Joshua, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent, and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out in the Lord's presence. Then Joshua and all Israel with him 
took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, I'm in verse 25, Joshua said, Why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them, them, not just him, his sons, his daughters, wife, all of his possessions. Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remain still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Acre still today. And that means, Acre means valley of trouble or disaster. Wow, right? Heavy. I do want to point out that the church is not Israel. This is, this is the Old Covenant. This is the Old Testament. We are under the, the New Covenant. Um, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross truly did deal with our sin penalty and, and the weight of sin, and it, it fulfilled the law. We've, we've already talked about that recently. And so we can't completely, uh, entirely make application from every single detail of this. Okay? Uh, it's not, you know, entirely line by line transferable in, in what transpired here and how this was done and, and how this took place and the results of Achan's sin. There are some differences. But saying that, there are still many, many things we can draw from this and still absolutely apply to our lives today, living under the new covenant, things that are absolutely to be uh, observed and applied and lived according to. I want to point out just three, three things that this tragic, tragic account teaches us where we are today, our lives, our church. Before I get to the first thing, let me just say this as kind of a a preface. Like an iceberg, there was more to Achan's sin than the obvious surface sins of coveting and idolatry. Those were symptoms of a deeper sin issue. The coveting that he admitted to, the idolatry, those were sins, sure, but they were symptoms of a deeper, deeper sin issue. And that's the first thing that, that this actually will teach us and show us if we'll pay attention. The sin of unbelief is at the heart of every other sin. The sin of unbelief is at the heart of every other sin. It's a lack of belief that God alone is enough to make us complete. That He alone is worthy of our complete devotion. See, that's what, that's what the sin of unbelief is. And every sin that comes after that is a direct result of that. It's, it's us failing to believe, God, you are enough. You alone are enough to make me complete, to fulfill me, to bring satisfaction into my life, to make me fulfilled. 
You alone. I don't need to look to any other thing or any other person. I don't need to chase after these things that will only leave me empty. You're enough. The sin of unbelief fails to recognize that, fails to apply that. And that's what then causes us to go and look at at this or that and to make sinful choices. If we don't acknowledge that root, that sinful root, that root of unbelief, and if we don't reject and repent it, it spreads and it grows into active, deliberate sin. Just this week, Aiden asked me, what's the big deal with weeds? Because I, I really, I hate, I hate weeds. Drives me crazy. Hate dandelions and all those things. And it doesn't matter what you do. They just keep coming. And I said, he said, well, what's wrong with weeds? I mean, they're, they're like plants. And I said, no, no, no. They take over everything. They want to rule your yard. They mess up things. They're awful. And they just keep spreading and growing. And that's, that's how sin works. And particularly, that's how the sin of unbelief works. It's a root. It's a weed. And if we don't deal with it at the source, if we don't reject that unbelief and repent of that, if we don't repent of our sin of unbelief, then it will spread into active and deliberate sin in all sorts of other ways. You follow me on that? And so we've got to deal with it at the root. We've got to recognize that every other sin comes back to the the source of the sin of unbelief. That's the first thing that that Achan's sin in this account will teach us if we will let it. Secondly, this shows us, this account shows us that if willful sin is present, willful sin meaning deliberate, intentional, known sin that that we just absolutely choose and run to and give ourselves over to, if willful sin is present, God's blessing will be absent. Let me say it another way. God will never bless open, active, undealt with, unrepented sin. He'll never bless it. He'll never bless the person or the church that allows for and entertains undealt with sin. If willful sin is present, God's blessing will be absent. We saw that very clearly with Achan's sin and and with this account, with Israel's resulting defeat at the hands of Ai. And church, we need to see it just as clearly in our own lives You need to see that just as clearly in your life. I need to see that just as clearly in my life. We need to see that just as clearly true and and absolutely something we need to believe and practice here at the church level, in our church. If willful sin is present, God's blessing will be absent. Now, saying that, we do need to be very careful here. Okay, Hear me on this. We need to be very careful here. Because sometimes... We can perceive or feel that God isn't blessing or working in our ministry when in fact He is. It just might be that it's not in the ways we prefer or assume that He would work. So discernment and wisdom are very needed. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Uh, It's not that that God is, is uh, absolutely not blessing or absolutely not working just because we might 
think that's the case or we might feel that to be the case. So we need to be discerning. But, but saying that, if things do objectively point to God not blessing or using our ministry as has historically been the case, or in our personal spiritual lives as we step back and we do some inventory and we, we seek God and ask Him to reveal uh, what's going on to us, if, if in our personal spiritual lives we don't seem to be as fruitful or as healthy as we once were, then this, this concept, this willful sin and God not blessing because of sin, then this is likely a big reason why. Because it's a reality that God is not going to bless active sin. We need to look at that. We need to evaluate things. We need to evaluate our own lives. We need to evaluate our corporate life as the body of Christ. Third thing that this account will teach us. God sees the sin under every rug. God sees the sin under every rug. Our human uh, tendency, our natural tendency, is to sweep the sin under the rug, to sweep things under the rug, out of sight, out of mind. That's, that's the default human reaction. I mean, just look at Washington, D.C. You see that over and over again. That's human nature. But God sees the sin under every rug that we try to use to sweep our sin under. Achan obviously experienced how true that is, but it's a timeless truth applicable to all of us. What happens in Vegas never stays in Vegas in real life. I want you to look at Hebrews 4, 12-13 with me. I'll give you time to flip there or scroll there. Hebrews 4, 12-13. And this is going to show us that what we saw with Achan and with Israel, it's not limited to an Old Testament thing. It's not just an Old Testament principle or reality. This is something that is timeless in its truth and timeless in its relevancy that God sees the sin under every rug. He sees through it all. He knows when no one else does. We can fool everyone else. We can hide our sin from everyone else. We can even fool ourselves and hide things from our our own perception. But God is never fooled, and we can't hide anything from Him. Hebrews 4, 12-13. This is from the ESV. The writer says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from, and now notice this, His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now, who is the writer referring to? What is his him connected to? The very first statement. The Word of God being living and active. That's the connection. The Word of God is living and active. 
Who is the eternal living Word of God? Who is that? You tell me. Jesus Christ. So this author here, the author of Hebrews, is saying the Word of God is living and active and it's able to do things that nothing else can do. It's able to do things no one else can do. It's able to go down deep and to the division of the soul and the spirit. It will even discern not just what you say and do, but what's behind it. It will discern your thoughts, the intentions and motives of your heart. That's what the Word of God is able to do. And it's not just a thing. It's not just an it. It's a him. That no creature is hidden from the eternal Word, Jesus Christ. No creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So, if you have checked out or nodded off at this point, here's, the, here's where I need you to wake up, tune back in, alright? Everybody. The question we have to ask is this. This is the question we all have to ask. In light of the sin of Achan and that account, in light of what we just saw here in Hebrews four twelve and 13, about the Word of God being living and active and discerning our thoughts and our intentions of our heart, that we're all naked and exposed before Him, and that we all have to give an account to Him. Here is the question that we all have to ask. What's in our tent? The title of this message is, What's in Your Tent? And I I want you to think about that. I want you to ask that. What's in my tent? What have I got in my tent that I need to draw out and, and confess and deal with? But it's not just about you. It's about me. It's about us. What is in our tent at Faith Baptist Church? What's in our tent? Just like Achan's sin affected the entire community of Israel... The church is a body. You agree with that, right? You know that. The church is not just about an individual. It's a collection of individuals. It's a called out assembly. It's a body, a community, a faith interwoven with one another. So when one part of the body is sick or hurt in some way, the whole body is affected. If I sin and I don't deal with it, it's going to affect you. If you sin and you don't deal with it, it's going to affect me. It's going to affect us. We're interwoven together. We're an interwoven community of faith. Here's where the application comes. I know some of you wonder. I know you do. And I know sometimes you even ask out loud. I've heard it. We've talked about it one-on-one some. Some of you. Why there's not more growth? Why aren't we seeing people coming to Christ for salvation and baptized and added to the church more? You wonder that. I wonder that. You've asked that. I've asked that. Some of you wonder and sometimes even ask out loud why there doesn't seem to be forward motion and, and sustained momentum. Why do we keep having a revolving door? Why there's not more joy and passion in our fellowship and our worship? Why aren't we really impacting our community and seeing them respond? Good questions. All good questions. To answer those questions, though, I think we need to take a hard, honest look at ourselves and ask, How we might be like Achan. 
What are the Babylonian garments, if you will, hiding in the tent of our heart? That's what we need to ask ourselves. And I'm going to raise some of those questions for you in our next moments that I want you to really consider and think about. And know that as I'm framing it for you, I'm asking the same question of myself. Here we go. Questions to consider. Is what you view or read driven by lust or saturated with a toxic, clearly sinful worldview? What you view, what you read. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Get it, get it out of your life. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? David shows us that with gazing at Bathsheba. Over and over again, we see the importance of what we look at, what we allow into our minds. It affects everything else. Is what you view or read driven by lust or saturated with a toxic, clearly sinful worldview? Do you frequently have roast Christian or roast pastor? When you gather with your family and friends or fellow church members, in other words, are you overly critical and just frequently critical and judgmental and negative in what you say about people, what you say about your pastors? Unfortunately, we Christians can be very cannibalistic. In other words, we can bite and devour one another. James tells us how dangerous that is. He said, my brothers, out of the same mouth can come blessing and cursing. With our, with our tongue we praise God, and with our same tongue we curse our brothers. My brothers, this should not be so. Our speech matters. What we do with our speech matters. We can bite and devour one another. Don't do that. Don't be a Christian cannibal. Or another analogy, if you'd prefer, we're really good at friendly fire. Really good at friendly fire, and we shouldn't be. Here's another question. Do you get involved with gossip or pointless controversies and arguments in person or on social media? See, we have the, the social media is an illusion. First of all, it's an illusion of connection. We're going to talk about that as we start this next series next week and, and the weeks following. Social media is an illusion of connection, but it's also an illusion of anonymity. Social media provides this very false, safe place. It's not really a safe place. It makes you think you can say things on there that you wouldn't say in person. It doesn't matter. Whether it's on social media or in person, it's equally harmful, equally dangerous, equally sinful. There's not an exclusion with social media when you gossip and criticize on social media because it's there and it's not in person. Another question. Are you spreading, rather than tearing down, a root of bitterness or division within the church body? Are you cultivating a root of bitterness rather than stamping it out, getting rid of it? A root of bitterness or division within the body instead of unity? Let me continue, just a couple more. Because at one point, you, you see this, don't you? At one point, all of these can be symptomatic of all of us. Maybe some of you are allowing some injustice 
that's happened, or the fact that you were personally wronged in some way, or your family was wronged in some way, you've allowed that to rob you, and you're allowing it even right now, you're allowing it to rob you of the peace and the joy of your salvation. And it's holding you back from really worshiping God or serving Him and His people. That's a hard one. It's a tough one. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's symptomatic of one or two or three or more of you. Let it go. Let it go. Right along with that, maybe some of you are holding on to resentment and anger instead of choosing to forgive the way we have all undeservingly received forgiveness from God. Ephesians 4.32 should come to mind. Now, all that being said, having asked those questions, once we recognize and admit whatever the sinful things that we're harboring and hiding may be, and, and it's going to be different from one person to the next. So it's about you personally evaluating, you personally saying what, what Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my, my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. It's us doing that. Once we recognize and admit whatever the sinful things that we're harboring and hiding may be, the next question that we have to ask is this. What should we do? Okay, I recognize it. I've acknowledged it. I've admitted it. What do I do now? What should we do about it once we see it, once we admit it? Well, church, the answer is not to just return to the good old days. That's not the answer for fixing our church. It's just not, it's just not going to work. You know, making our church healthier or seeing God's blessing more in our church, it's not about returning to the, quote, good old days or to try to have everything done the way we prefer. That's not the answer. Nor is it to work hard to become more, quote, current or culturally palatable? That's definitely not the answer. So what is the answer? Everybody listen. The answer is repentance. The answer is repentance. Do you want to see God's blessing undeniably, constantly at work? Do you want to see us grow and be healthy? Of course you do. Do I? Absolutely. I mean, I remind you, I'm the pastor. (laughs) Of course I want that. The answer, though, is in repentance. Continual, sincere, real, powerful repentance. Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous Welsh pastor, theologian, author. He said this, "...the great concern of the New Testament epistles is not about the size of the church... It is about the purity of the church. The great concern of the New Testament epistles is not about the size of the church. It is is about the purity of the church. So I want to close with this passage that I'll just read to you, and then I'm going to issue a very specific call to our church, to all of us. James 4, 8-10 says this. This is from the NLT. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. 
Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He, look at the result of that. Listen to the result of that. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up in honor. But the humbling happens first. That was James 4. 8 through 10. It's repentance. That's what that's about. That's what James is talking about. Repentance. And that's what I'm calling for us to do, to pursue. All through Scripture, there's the pattern of repentance being directly connected to fasting. The outward activity, the outward exercise of fasting is connected to the internal reality of repentance. All through Scripture. And we've had church-wide fast here many times now over the years. And I'm, I'm calling for another one now. I'm calling for a fast for our church focused, focused on personal repentance that we may share corporately in repentance. I'm asking for a fasting connected to humility that we would all humble ourselves before God that we may experience Him lifting us up. And so, let's start this tomorrow. I want to challenge you to take the rest of today to think and pray about how God might lead you to fast and what area that might be. It might be food. It doesn't have to be food. It can be technology. It can be media and entertainment. It can be activities. You you get with God and ask Him how, how He would direct you to fast to fast from. And here's, here's another thing that's open to you and God. I want to ask that you at least make it 14 days. At least do a two-week fast, if nothing else. Maybe some of you will be led to draw that out to 21 days. It's what Daniel did, 21-day fast. Um, Maybe some of you will even want to go ahead and just finish the month with it, a month-long fast for the month of May. That's up to you. And there's no judgment or anything on any level of that. Just, Just pick one of those, please. I'm asking as your pastor, please commit to this church-wide fast. Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Let's do this together. And let's experience what Israel experienced with people like King Hezekiah, King Josiah, when they did all their reforms, when they got rid of idolatry in their nation, and they fasted. They saw the blessing and the favor of God sweep in and raise them up, and it was undeniable that God was at work, and He restored so much to them. We can experience the same here and today, I promise you, but it can't happen without repentance. If there's an area of your life that God has revealed to you, even while I've been speaking, as we've looked at these passages that you need to deal with right here and now today in a very physical manner. This space is open to you. Come, make this your personal altar. Lay down whatever you need to. There's no shame in it. Come and do whatever you need to do if you feel led to do that. Father, thank You for Your Word. This was a hard passage. This was a heavy topic, but it's a necessary one. It's one that we all need to heed, to learn from, and to apply. Help us please, by Your Spirit, to identify what type of Babylonian garments we might have hidden in the tent of our heart. Help us to acknowledge it. Help us to admit it. 
Help us to get rid of it and to cling to the promise of 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sin, He, you, God, is faithful, faithful to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is ours through Jesus Christ, and I thank you for that. May we truly repent of our sins, and may we experience your refreshing and renewing as a result of that repentance. And as a church, may we actually see growth and health and success as you define that, God, as we humble ourselves and repent. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.